Well, Memorial Weekend, you know, we're uh, excited about uh, our series that we're in, in the book of Acts, and uh, we're going to be getting into Acts chapter 10 uh, today in our lesson, and I've entitled the message, God Knows. And you might be thinking, God knows what? Well, in the Bible, it tells us God knows everything. The Bible tells us that God knows your heart. He knows your comings and your goings. God knows where you're at spiritually, physically, emotionally, financially, relationally, and he knows where he wants you to be. And most importantly, he knows how you're going to get there. And you never travel alone. The Lord travels with you. There were two rural church deacons who thought they would have a casual social beer at a local tavern. And so as they were drinking, they saw the pastor drive past the parking lot and slow down. And one of the deacons said to the other deacon, I sure hope he doesn't recognize our trucks in the parking lot. And the other deacon said, in an indifferent way, it doesn't matter, God knows, and that's all that counts. Well, the other deacon said, yeah, but God won't tell my wife. <laughs> Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. It says, in Caesarea there lived a Roman officer, Cornelius, a captain of an Italian regiment. He was a godly man, deeply reverent, as was his entire household. He gave generously to charity and was a man of prayer. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the story that we're introduced to here in Acts 10 of a man by the name of Cornelius. And what his testimony and what his life can speak into us today. I thank you for your mercy and grace being with each and every person here today. Be with our men and women who served in the armed forces. Be with their marriages that are under attack. Be with their families. Be with their children. As many of them are away on long deployments. We pray your grace and mercy to be with every family that has suffered loss this Memorial Weekend, in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. There are three thoughts I want to share with you today from the text that we're going to be, the lengthy verses that we'll be going through. And the first is this, that godliness is its own reward. This guy, Cornelius, what we're going to find out about him in a little, in a little while is that he was a, not just a good man, he was a godly man. We live in a society today, we live in a world today that elevates ungodly men and ungodly women. But what counts in heaven, what counts in Scripture, and what counts with God is God admires and God celebrates a godly person. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, the Apostle Paul said, But godliness with contentment is great gain. You see, there's great gain in living a godly life. Godliness is its own reward. There is a benefit to being a godly person. Now the difference between, well the opposite of being godly is being worldly. And the difference between worldliness and godliness is that a godly person has a deep reverence and love for the one true and living God. Matter of fact, the highest compliment somebody could ever pay you is that you're a godly person. I think one of the most wonderful words a parent could 
here at some point in time in their life is to hear their children describe their mother or describe their father by saying, I was raised by a godly mother. God bless you if you have or you are being raised by a godly mother. One of the greatest compliments a man could ever receive is, is to hear his children say at some point in time in their life, I was raised by a godly father. There is no higher compliment that anyone could ever bestow upon you than for someone to say, you are a godly person. What does it mean to be godly? Basically, it means to be like God. Godliness is God-likeness. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul said that we're to be imitators of God as dearly loved children. To be an imitator of God is to want to be like God, just like a child grows up and wants to be like his father. We desire to be like our heavenly father. It doesn't mean that you're squeaky clean. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you don't make mistakes. But whenever we veer off course, we're convicted of the Holy Spirit and we get back on course by God's grace with God's help and the power of the Holy Spirit. I say that because this fella in Acts 10, Cornelius, was a godly man, and it was about to pay off for him big time. Now, who was he? Well, a lot of times the Bible doesn't give us such detail about an individual, but in this particular case, it does. It tells us that he was a Roman officer. It tells us he was a captain in the Roman army, which meant that he had a hundred men under his command. The Bible tells us he was an Italian. You just have to know that Italians are very special people in the world. Never forget that. It's no coincidence that the first Gentile to be saved in the New Testament happened to be an Italian. It could have been my great, 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 great grandfather on my father's side, this Cornelius. So always be thankful for the Italians and not just for their cooking. Amen. He was from a place called Caesarea. Caesarea was located and is located in the northeast coastlands of the Holy Land. A couple of years ago, my wife traveled with some other pastors in this region, and we were in the Holy Land, and we were in Caesarea. And you can see, we have a picture here for you, just to see how actually how beautiful it still is. And this is where Cornelius was uh, stationed in the Roman uh, army. It's also interesting that the first interaction that Jesus had with a Gentile in the Gospels happened to be, not this one, but happened to be a Roman centurion. This Roman centurion was in need of a miracle and he said basically to Jesus, you don't even have to come to my house, only speak the word. I'm a man under authority and when I say do something, it gets done. I know you are God in human form, basically was what he was saying. Just speak the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus was stunned. And he said, I have not seen so great a faith in all of Israel. Now, Cornelius is important in this story because he represents the entire Gentile world. You see, up to this time, the only people that were saved were Jews who had become Christians. We call them Messianic Jews. Jewish people who lived according to the Jewish law and the Jewish commandments and who were Jewish either by birth 
or they were proselytized and went through the proper ceremonies to become a, a worshiper of the true and living God and practice Judaism. You see, at this particular point in time, the world was divided into two groups of people, just two groups of people, not by race, not even by gender, not, not by nationality, but by virtue of birth. The world was filled with God's chosen people, the Jews, or it was filled with Gentiles. If you weren't a Jew, you could only be one other thing in life. You were a Gentile. Gentile is a nice way of saying heathen. So for all of us in here today that are not of Jewish descent, hello, fellow heathens. <laughs> but in Jesus' coming, it gave hope to the Gentile world because now the gospel wasn't just going to be for the Jewish people. It was first to the Jew, but then for the Gentile. This chapter in Acts shows how from this moment forward, the gospel was going to go into the Gentile world world and that's what makes this story important to us and that's what makes it so significant in the history of our faith as it's outlined here in the book of Acts. So really when you look at the world today it's divided into three categories three groups groups of people not by race not by color not by nationality. In 1st Corinthians chapter 10 verse 32 the Apostle Paul says so don't be a stumbling block to anyone whether they are Jews or Gentiles or Christians. You see, there are three groups, three categories of people in the world. Either you're a Jew or you're a Gentile or you're a Christian. There's a whole new breed of individuals. There's a whole, there's a new creation that's in the world. That's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, barbarian or Scythian, for we're all one in Christ. And when you become a Christian, you become a brand new creature in Christ Jesus. Something that's never existed in the world before. You're not a Jew. You're not a Gentile. You are a Christian, a follower of Messiah. Amen. You still might be of Jewish descent or Gentile descent uh, by way of Shem or by way of Ham or, or, or Noah's three sons, Ham. Shem, Jephthah. And so you may be Gentile, and based on whatever your nationality may be, you're traced back to one of Noah's three sons after the flood. But now you're a new creation. More than being a Jew, or more than being a Gentile of whatever descent you're from, you're now a Christian, something that's never existed before. So Cornelius was a godly man. He was a man who feared God with his entire household. I love that. What does it mean to fear God? Well, what it means is it's not some superstitious dread that if you do wrong, God is waiting to wallop you and send you to hell. That's not the fear of God. Don't be mistaken. The fear of God is a dread of failing to please the God you so deeply and dearly love. To live with the fear of God means the fear of falling short of God's grace for your life. The fear of bringing displeasure to the heart of the God that you love so dearly and so deeply. The God that you have devoted your entire life to. That was Cornelius. He was not only a good man, he was a godly man and he feared God with his entire household. Kind of like Joshua in the Old Testament. 
Joshua stood before the people of God one day and said, I don't know about you, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. That's the attitude that every husband and every father and every man and every single mom, every single person should have. I don't know what the rest of the world has decided to do, but I know what I've decided to do. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord with deep devotion and love and passion. You know, Satan has a triple threat. What's the triple threat of Satan? Well, first of all, he wants to keep you from being saved. If he loses that, if he can't keep you from being saved, then he'll strive to keep you from being active and useful as a Christian. And thirdly, if he loses on that second threat, his third threat is he'll spend the rest of your days on earth wanting to darken your character. And the devil never takes a day off. The devil never takes a vacation. The devil never takes a holiday. Cornelius was a good man. He was a godly man. And his faith was contagious. Look at verse 3 of Acts 10. And while wide awake one afternoon, this, this is Cornelius now, he had a vision. God still gives visions, by the way. It was about 3 o'clock, and in this vision, he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said. And Cornelius stared at him in terror. Can you imagine? You're just in your devotion time with the Lord, praying, meditating on Scripture, and boom, all of a sudden, an angel of the Lord starts, starts walking towards you. I mean, if, if that angel shows up to a home in Texas, he better be careful. <laughs> Could get shot, I'm just saying. What do you want, sir, he asked the angel. And the angel replied, I want you to read this last part of the verse out loud with me. Your prayers and charities have not gone unnoticed by God. Now send some men to Joppa to find a man named Simon Peter who's staying with Simon the tanner down by the shore and ask him to come and visit you. Look at the detail. You see, back then they didn't have physical addresses. They said, you need to go to this city. You need to look for this man. He's staying with this man. This man happens to be a tanner. So when you showed up to Joppa, you'd say, where's the tanner Simon the tanner live? And they would say, over there by the shore. So God knows everything. And so they give him specific instructions on where he was to go and who he was to find. Now, there are two important truths here. The first is this. Cornelius was a good man. He was a godly man. He was a God-fearing man, but he still needed to be saved. You know, it's not enough keeping the Ten Commandments. It's not enough being a good person, and there's advantages to being a good moral person. There's advantages, far, far, far more advantages to living a godly life than living an ungodly life. Just look at how sin is ravaging, ravaging our world today, ravaging homes and the lives of men and women today reducing men and women to less than what God had originally created them to be, created in the image and likeness of God, to be like God. Not to be a God, but to be like God. And to live with dominion in this world that God created. To go forth and to replenish and to multiply and to take dominion. The light, to live life to the fullest life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, as our Constitution says, right? To live life to its fullest, 
And yet so many, so many are ravaged by a lifestyle that's ungodly, that's worldly. God has something better for you. There's a better way to live your life that's much, much, much more rewarding and fulfilling than to be wasted away by drugs or wasted away by alcohol or wasted away by perversion or sexual immorality, to be wasted away by the, the carnal appetites and the, and, the, and the fleshly appetites of this carnal, sinful world that we live in today. It pays off to be a good person. To be a godly person. I know our world doesn't elevate godly people. It doesn't celebrate godly people. It celebrates worldly people. It celebrates carnal people. But God celebrates godly people. And godliness is its own reward. But even though this guy Cornelius was a good man and a godly man, he still needed to be saved. It's not enough to be moral. It's not enough to be good. It's not enough to be godly. It's not enough to even love God. There are a lot of people that are good, moral, and they love God, but they're not saved yet. Now, you're only one small step away from salvation, but you need to cross over. Cornelius needed the full revelation of who God was now through his son, Jesus Christ. And so now Cornelius was about to be saved. Now listen, only, only humans can lead others to Christ. It would have been easy for the angel to have just given Cornelius the gospel message, but angels have not been assigned with that. Humans have. You and I as Christians are to go in all the world and preach the gospel. That's why every time God gives us an opportunity to share our faith, we want to share our faith. We want to be active in sharing our personal testimony and our personal story of coming to Christ with others who have not yet accepted Christ. So there, the two important truths is, number one, God uses us to lead others to Christ, and number two, it's not good enough being a good person or a moral person or even a godly person. You must be saved. You must surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Here's the second thing I want you to know is that God knows your address. In Revelation 2.13, it says, I know where you live. I don't know about you, but it's comforting to know and understand that God knows your address. He knows where you live. He knows where you're at right now, physically, emotionally, spiritually. He has every hair in your head numbered. He knows everything about you. God knows. He knows where you live. I remember when I was single and I was begging God to be married one day. I wanted, I wanted a wife. I wanted to be married. I wanted companionship. And all my friends were getting married. I'm like, God, have you forgotten where I live? And in my prayer, I gave him my, my address. I don't remember it anymore. It was at a, an apartment. But I said, I'm right here. Are you out there? I know you are. I say it lovingly and respectfully. <laughs> God's word back to me was, be patient. That's the one thing I can be, God, is patient, right? But there was always a lesson to learn when, no matter what season of life you may find yourself in. After I was married and living at 7316 Bangor, Northwest Taylor Ranch in Albuquerque, New Mexico, you can Google it and see the first house we ever lived in. I went up to the Petroclis right behind my house. I'm like, God, I want to be in ministry. Do you know where I live? <laughs> He's like, I know where you live. My plan is going to be fulfilled in your life. You just have to be patient. Turn to your neighbor and in a loving way say, be patient. <laughs> God knows where you live. Here's some of the most amazing things in the book of Acts. God knew exactly where everybody was at. Okay, that, I know that's not, a, that's not a huge feat for a God that knows everything to begin with. He's all-powerful and all-knowing. I know that. 
But think about this. God needed a man to meet an Ethiopian traveling back to Africa from Jerusalem who was a sincere seeker of the truth. So he knew where that Ethiopian eunuch was. He knew where Philip was. And he had Philip and this Ethiopian eunuch, their paths intersect by a divine act, of, a serendipitous divine act that wasn't a coincidence. It was God bringing two lives together for a purpose. God needed a man to find a blind man by the name of Saul of Tarsus who was on a street called Straight and he knew where Ananias was and he told Ananias how to find Saul and where Saul was and their lives intersected at a divine moment in time. God needed a man to give the gospel to a good man, but still an unregenerated Roman centurion, and he knew where Cornelius lived, and he knew where Peter was staying, and God arranged this divine moment where two lives intersected. Don't you know that God could put you at the right place at the right time to meet the right people that he is destined for you to meet to get you where he wants you to be? We simply need to be open and available and willing and ready and miracles are in your future. you got to believe that. Divine opportunities are in your future. You must believe that God will have you at the right place at the right time to meet the right people, to get you where you're supposed to be. I believe that wholeheartedly. So in verse 7 of Acts 10, the story continues, as soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a godly soldier. You heard it right. You read it right. You can be a godly soldier. I know there are some ungodly soldiers, but you can be a God-fearing soldier or God-fearing law enforcement officer. And one of his personal bodyguard and told them what had happened and, and sent them off to Joppa the next day, as they were nearing the city, Peter, Peter went up on the flat roof of his house to pray. Two lives are about to intersect. Two lives, two worlds are about to collide, and God is orchestrating it. God is arranging this divine, serendipitous moment when two lives will connect for a divine purpose. Now, Joppa was about 31 miles away from Caesarea. Uh, it was a good 10-hour journey by foot. So Cornelius sends his delegation to Joppa to find Peter. Peter knows nothing about this. Sometimes we don't know even now how God is working behind the scenes on your behalf right now. As you are seated here in church, God is orchestrating and working behind the scenes on your behalf. So Peter's, it's lunchtime. He's hungry and lunch isn't ready. So guys, if, if you're frustrated because lunch isn't ready, go to the rooftop to pray. That's what Peter was doing. Now it's no coincidence that at noon, at noon, at noon, Peter was praying. You know why? Because the Hebrew people, they know many secrets, many secrets about money, many secrets about relationships, many secrets about divine power. One of their secrets is all Jewish people, devout Jewish pe Hebrew people, for thousands of years, you know what they do? They pray three times a day. Morning, noon, and evening. The psalmist said it this way. I want to talk to you about the power of prayer. I don't want to get ahead of my notes here, guys. <laughs> Working the PowerPoint, which is my son. Look at uh, point number two. Okay, point number three, the power of prayer. Everybody say that with me. The power of prayer. 
James 5.16, the second half of that verse, says the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power. What do you say? Great power. And produces wonderful results. If you're not satisfied with the results in your life presently, you can change that. You can change that. How? Setting aside time to pray. Because there's power, great power in prayer. And it produces, prayer produces wonderful results. So if you're not seeing wonderful results yet, you can. And now the psalmist said in Psalm 55, verse 17, evening and morning and noon, I will pray and cry aloud and, sh and you shall hear my voice. Morning, noon, and evening, three times a day. Matter of fact, Daniel, the great prophet Daniel in the Old Testament, they passed a law that praying to anyone during the period of time except to the king was illegal. And look at what Daniel did in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. It says, but when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home, knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with its windows open toward Jerusalem, of course. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. I challenge you over the next 90 days, set aside three times a day, in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, set aside a moment, a time to pray and to thank God. It doesn't have to be an hour prayer, if you can, great. It doesn't have to be a half hour, if you can, great. It could be just a few sentences, a paragraph or two, a couple of minutes. But begin to do that starting tonight. Turn to your neighbor and say, starting tonight. Go on, <laughs> starting tonight. And watch the results you'll begin to see manifest in your life. The power of prayer. You know, F.M. Alexander said, people do not decide their futures. They decide their habits, and their habits decide their futures. When you and I cultivate the habit of prayer, that will determine the bright future that God has for you. Look at verse 10. It was noon. Peter was hungry. But while lunch was being prepared, he fell into a trance. I can't tell you for how the last 30-plus years of walking with Jesus, this verse has always puzzled me. Because when the Bible uses this word trance, immediately we think metaphysical. We think new age. But it is a spiritual term used in a spiritual context. So the first thing you need to do is you need to look up the Greek word in, in the original Greek, which the New Testament was written in. This, this Greek word is the, is the word ekstrasis. It's where we get our word ecstasy from. And what happened was... Peter, through prayer, not, not literally, not physically, but through prayer, was transported into another realm, a spiritual realm. His mind was so intensely focused on God, on Scripture, that Peter lost all sense of this natural world that was around him. He was swept away by his thoughts about God. He was lifted above the meagerly elements of this world, and he was transported into a state of blissfulness in God's glorious presence. It's something like a daydream, but a daydream so concentrated and focused that all contact with one's surrounding world is completely lost. You're caught up in a spiritual moment of ecstasy in the presence of the Lord, receiving His Word and whatever He's pouring into your heart. You know, there is a trance-like experience in a biblical sense when you enter into prayer or worship. 
There are times it's like the world becomes a blur. Everything around you becomes a blur because you're so intensely focused on God and worshiping him, and it's as though you're transported to another place. How many of you know, please, how many of you know what I'm talking about? This is not because you're smoking that Colorado stuff. This is not because, you know, you're, 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 you're on, overdosing on medication. You know what I'm talking about? There's a real spiritual experience that you and I can have in worship and in prayer. This is what was happening to Peter. Look at verse 11. He saw the sky open and a great canvas sheet suspended by its four corners settled to the ground. In the sheet were all sorts of animals, snakes, and birds forbidden to the Jews for food. Then a voice said to him, go, kill, and eat any of them you wish. Never, Lord, Peter declared. I've never in all my life eaten such creatures, for they are forbidden by our Jewish laws. And the voice spoke again, don't contradict God. If he says something is kosher or clean, then it is. The same vision was repeated three times. The power of threes. Sometimes God's blessings or God's warnings come to us in threes. How many times did Peter deny the Lord? Three times. How many times did Jesus ask Peter if he loved him? Three times. How many times did this vision appear to Peter? Three times. Get the message? Maybe I should start preaching this same message three weeks in a row. Because, <laughs> you know, the average Christian only comes once every three weeks. Did you know that? Technically? But you are not the average Christian. That's what I'm talking about. Once again, the pastor's complimenting you. What are you supposed to do? Share some love back. Okay. Then the sheet was pulled up again to heaven. And Peter's like, what is happening? I know I was hungry. I didn't know I was that hungry. Right? You see, to the Jewish people, certain foods were clean, certain foods were unclean. Jesus touched on this in Mark chapter 7. He said, it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean. Whether you eat shellfish or not, whether you eat frog's legs or not, whether you eat pork or not. Now, for health reasons or personal reasons, you may choose not to eat certain foods. That's totally your prerogative. You should never do it for religious purposes because now we're under a new covenant. Jesus said it wasn't that when, it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean. It's what comes out of the man that makes them unclean. You see, we don't have the proper view of what's clean and what's unclean. Sometimes we look at something that's unclean and God says, no, it's clean. And sometimes we look at something the world says it's clean and God says, oh, no, don't touch it. It's unclean. And it'll make you unclean. But there are many people in the world for religious purposes who won't eat certain types of food. A couple of decades ago, I was traveling in India. My wife and I the other day saw that movie Lion, which is based on a true story. It was very moving. And it showed this little boy in India that got lost at the age of five. And he was on a train traveling. I said, I was on that train, literally. I, I was on that, it, the exact train I was on. She's like, you're kidding. I'm like, I'm not kidding. From Madras to Hyderabad, I was on one of those. It wasn't first class either. And I was traveling with, some, with, a, with a couple of other friends on this missions trip. And we were in this, this area of the, of the train. And I got hungry and I brought a lot of snacks with me. From America, that's what we do, right? We travel with snacks. And I pulled out my beef jerky, and I started eating it. And there were Hindus that we were trying to evangelize because we love them, you know, with Jesus. And I was eating my jerky. And I didn't speak the Hindu language, uh, the Indian language. They didn't, they didn't speak English. But I offered, out of kindness of my heart, I offered him some of my jerky. Well, my interpreter wasn't paying attention. He grabbed it, thanked me by nodding his head, and started eating. I said, it's good, isn't it? 
And then he asks in the Indian language, what is it? And my interpreter, mortified, said, That's in, in, it's, beef, it's beef, it's beef jerky, it's beef, don't eat it. He had never tasted meat before he started spitting it out of his mouth because it's against their religion. I thought to myself, see what you've been missing all these years? <laughs> it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean. It's what comes out of a man. <laughs> no, I tell you what, I did feel bad. I, I didn't want to violate his Hindu beliefs until after he got saved, amen. It's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean. It's what comes, comes out. You see, Peter believed to even talk to a Gentile could make you unclean. To come into close vicinity with a Gentile could make you unclean. To go into a Gentile's home could make you unclean. And he would never do that. But God's about to rock his world because he ends up going, traveling to Caesarea and walking into this Gentile's home. And we'll look at this next weekend. He's utterly shocked when this Cornelius and his entire household, they get saved, filled with the Holy Spirit, and start praying in other tongues. And Peter's blown away. He can't believe his eyes. You see, up to this point in time, everyone that was saved was a Jew. And the first one person that was going to be saved in the Gentile world was this Cornelius. And they believed, they believed that if you, were, if you were a Gentile and you wanted to be a Christian, you had to first go from being a Gentile to being a Jew, and then you could become a Christian. And God is saying, no, 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 no. You can go from being a lost sinner to being a son or daughter of God just like that because now there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Amen. <laughs> Verses 17 through 23, we're going to wrap this up. Peter was very perplexed. What could the vision mean? What was he supposed to do? And just then, the men sent by Cornelius, not by coincidence, had found the house and were standing outside the gate, inquiring whether this was the place where Simon and Peter lived. Meanwhile, as Peter was pu pu puzzling over the vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, three men have come to see you. Go down and meet them and go with them. All is well. I've sent them. So Peter went down. I'm the man you're looking for, he said. Now, what is, what is it you want? And then they told him about Cornelius, the Roman officer, a good and godly man, well thought of by the Jews, and how an angel had instructed him to send for Peter to come and tell him what God wanted him to do. So Peter invited them in and lodged them overnight. The next day, he went with them, accompanied by some other believers from Joppa. Once again, a 31-mile journey. Now, Peter's world is about to be rocked because the things in life he thought were unclean, God had just pronounced clean. God had lifted the ban on certain foods you couldn't eat. You know, sometimes if we're not careful, we we're raised in a home where we think certain things are unclean. So many times in the church world, we make it seem as though sex is unclean and sex is unclean. No, sex inside of marriage between one man and one woman is a gift from God. Do not call that which is unclean, clean. The world has taken that which is clean and has made it dirty and has made it unclean. And I think we need to take it back from the world because it's not the world's gift to us, it's God's gift to the believers, amen? Maybe you were raised in a home where you were taught your entire life, money is a necessary evil. Money is dirty. Literally, it is. Wash your hands after you touch it. Money is unclean. 
Uh, every, all $100 bills have a trace of cocaine on them, by the way. That's a scientific fact. <laughs> Maybe you're raising a home. Money's unclean. Pastor Carl, do you have any $100 bills? I'd like to test that myself. <laughs> no, do you have? Put it in the offering. Amen. Money's unclean. Money's unclean. No, no. The love of money's the root of all evil. No, the love of money's the root of all evil. Money's not clean or unclean. It's a tool. You can make it unclean or you can make it clean. Dependent on how you use it. Maybe you were raised in a home that was filled with some racism or prejudice. And when you see an interracial marriage, you think, unclean. How dare you? You know, love isn't based on the shade of color of one's skin. Love isn't based on whether what your ethnicity is or what your race is. Love is based on love. Love that God pours in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And love isn't based on the color of someone's skin. Love is based on what God has done in someone's heart. Do not call something unclean that God has made clean. Now I end with this. What a guy Cornelius was. He was devoted. So many people in our world today are devoted to so many things. Listen, I'm like the next guy. I love sports. I've got my favorite sports on TV that I follow. But I don't let sports become my God. For so many people in our world, they're more devoted to sports than they are to God. There are fans that won't miss a home game of their team because they're devoted. Well, how many know we're fans of Jesus? More than fans, we're followers of Jesus. And we never miss a home game. That's why we're in church every weekend worshiping God with the people. Come on, somebody, don't shout me down. The only reason you shouldn't be here is because you're in the hospital, you're in jail, or you're traveling. And then you can tune in live video streaming. Amen. <laughs> so many people are devoted to so many things. And a person that's devoted to alcohol, every waking moment, it's all about how they can get that next drink because they're devoted to that. Those that are devoted to gambling, every waking moment, they're, they're arranging their life and their schedule for that next opportunity that they have to get that next adrenaline thrill. You and I are to be men and women devoted to God. I read it this morning in my devotional reading through Scripture, Revelation 3. I would that you were either hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Chapter 2, he said to the church, Ephesus, he said, you've lost your first love. May we not be in a place today where we've lost our first love. May we not be in a place today where we celebrate the ungodly people in our world and the ungodliness in our world and not the godly people and godliness in our world. May we not be in a place today that we're more devoted to other things than we are to God. He should come first place. And may we not be in a place today where we call that which is unclean, clean or that which is clean, unclean. And when it comes to your life, my friend, I know we live in a dirty world. Sometimes we do dirty, nasty things. But God has made you clean by the blood of Jesus. And you have no right to call that which is clean, unclean. And God's made a way for us to stay clean. I love this. God's made a way for us to stay clean. 1 John 1, 9. Listen to what it says. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. Listen. Not just forgive us, not just forgive us, and to cleanse us. Woo! There's nothing like being clean before Jesus, amen? And cleanse us from all unrighteousness so you don't have to live another moment with shame or with guilt. It's not in any way to minimize 
the sin that you've been involved in or the sin that you've committed. But once you're washed, you're washed. You're clean. You look clean. You smell clean. You is clean. You are clean. You are going to remain clean in Jesus' name. Come on, can we thank God whom the sun sets free? free indeed. Wow, I got I to gotta shut up. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, we thank you for your mercy and your grace visiting each and every one today. You know where we live. You know everything. You know everything about us, and yet you still love us. Thank you that you know where we need to be, and you know how we're going to get there by your grace, by the leading of your Holy Spirit. If heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here today and you need to rededicate your life to Christ, or you've never surrendered your life to Christ, today's the day, now's the time. Heads bowed, eyes closed here in Trinity Central, in the chapel, those of you watching live video streaming, open up your heart, turn your life over to God. Pray this prayer out loud with the rest of us. Say it with your own mouth, mean it from your own heart. Dear God in heaven, I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. I call upon you, Jesus. I ask you now, come into my heart. Come into my life. Be my Lord and be my Savior. I turn from sin to the true and living God. I receive his love, his grace, and his forgiveness. Dear God in heaven, you're now my Father, and I am your child. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit. Give me strength to live for you and serve you all the days of my life, beginning today for the rest of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Can we thank the Lord together, church family? <laughs>